This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And today's episode is the final regular episode of the 2019-2020 season. And what better topic to discuss than Anne Boleyn? So I've invited back Tara Ball, a warden of the White Tower, to discuss Anne's time at the Tower and much more. Before we get started, I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Janae J, Nicholas C, Jenny H, Barbara, Tanya L, and Karen B. Thank you so much for your support. And thanks as well to all of you who are existing patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty and click become a patron. Right now, patrons receive early access to lessons on my Tudor course, as well as being eligible to win my monthly gift giveaways. This month, I'm giving away two books. You still have time to become a patron. These two books are Young and Damned and Fair by Gareth Russell and Corrado by Adrian Dillard. One is about Catherine Howard and the other one is about Catherine Carey. You really can't go wrong. And like I said, the drawing happens at the end of this month, so you still have time. In addition to those two books, here's the clincher. We'll also be giving away the famous Anne Boleyn Bee Pearl Necklace. It's a handmade replica of it. It is absolutely stunning, and it has been offered to us by the Falcon's Nest. So I'll have links to that so you can check out some pictures and see what it's all about. If you enjoy the Tudor's Dynasty podcast, please subscribe or follow wherever you listen to my episodes. Also, if you feel so inclined to do so, please leave a review there as well. All right, well, let's get on with the show. Today, I welcome Tara Ball to the show. Tara is a warden of the Tower of London, has some wonderful insight on Anne Boleyn and her time at the Tower. Tara, welcome to the show. Hello, welcome, and uh, thank you for having me. Let's just start from the beginning. What is it that has you and so many other people so fascinated by Anne Boleyn? For me, Anne Boleyn is the most fascinating of the six wives of Henry VIII, uh, simply because it's hard to find one exact reason about why she is um, so fascinating. I think it's her whole story um, because she, the king fell in love with her or she fell in love with the king either way. And it started out so great, but it ended in a really big tragedy. And I suppose ever since learning about her in primary school, I've just always wanted to know why this happened. I keep questioning myself over and over again about why this happened. I wanted to know more and it's just never actually ended and I think for other people um, becoming fascinated about Anne Boleyn I think it's more or less the same reasons everyone's got a different reason um, why they are so fascinated with her but I think I tend to find a common one tends to be because it's hard to find the real woman in my opinion um, because there is so little evidence but then there's so much but I think a lot of it is other people's opinions and I think other people 
become very fascinated by her because I think in some way they can connect to her story because I think everyone has had a friendship or relationship that's broken down and I feel personally that everyone can kind of relate to that and I think they, they see this historical figure and they they feel that they can connect to her in some small way and her whole story is just absolutely fascinating. I, I like I think I once watched a documentary about the Titanic, ironically enough, and I think that one one of the historians was saying in that one that it's like a great novel, and I, I, I think I can relate to the whole story of Henry VIII and his six wives. It's like a great novel that was never written. It actually happened in real life. And I think when you get a story that that touches you in the same way that a novel does it becomes absolutely fascinating and you continually question it, trying to search for the truth. Um, but other than that, I think it's, it's wonderful that we have a historical figure that is so fascinating and it's like it's out there waiting to be found out. She is out there just waiting to be her truth to be found out indeed. I had previously mentioned that you are a warden of the tower and we're talking about Anne Boleyn today. And obviously it is the month of May, which is the anniversary of her execution. So there's a lot of talk about her this month, a lot of talk about the tower. What Mm. does it, what does it really mean to be a warden of the tower? Well, my official title is um, I'm a warden of the White Tower at at Her Majesty's Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London. And it's a wonderful job to have, as as I spoke about in the previous podcast. And it it means really a lot to me personally. And I think everyone else, all my colleagues, it really means a lot to them as well. Um, it's hard to describe under one umbrella what the actual job is, um, but its main role appears to be um, a customer service role, um, like in the sense that you're interacting with the visitors and you get to talk about the history. So I guess it's like a museum assistant at the same time. Um, you're in charge of the gallery that you're posted on for that day. And you're surrounded by the historical objects um, in the armory, which is the White Tower, is the armory. And it does include armours of Henry VIII. And all these armours have just got fascinating backstories. And I think it's good to have someone, when you're a visitor, it's good to have someone there, I think, to tell you the stories. Um, because it's it's so much better than just reading on signage boards um, to have a storyteller there to tell them about the story of the buildings and of the armors and just the history of the tower in general. There's so much history at the Tower of London. If I recall, does it go back to William the Conqueror? It does. Um, it goes back to the first building was the White Tower itself, the central keep. Um, it dates back to, we think, about the year 1078. So we're talking about the Tower of London, and one of the probably most well-known gates that everybody has heard of is the Traitor's Gate. So for those who are maybe less familiar with Anne Boleyn's story, when she was arrested and brought to the Tower, was she brought by boat like so many others, and, and did she come through the Traitor's Gate? 
Um, I'm afraid she didn't, no. Um, she actually used what was known as the Royal Gate. Um, it was the Sally Port, um, we believe, was the Royal Gate at the time. She was arrested at Greenwich, rode up the river, and she entered through the Royal uh, passageway. Traitor's Gate um, was known as Watergate in her time and it was sort of the more public one. I mean we did have prisoners that come through Traitor's Gate as such. We had Sir Thomas More for example come through Traitor's Gate but because Anne was still the Queen at the time of her arrest she would have had the privilege of using the Royal Entrance and she would have come through the Sally Port be faced by the bell tower and turned right to walk down towards uh, Traitor's Gate, which would have headed for the Royal Apartments at the Tower of London, which was south of the White Tower itself. Um, but yes, she was greeted by, I believe, who the constable of the Tower, William Kingston, at the time. And there's a lot of recording of their conversation. She said, Master Kingston, shall I go into a dungeon? And he replied, no, madam, you shall go where you lay before your coronation. And we know that from the records, that it was the old royal palace. Unfortunately, the royal palace is not standing today. Most of it was torn down in 1674, which is roughly about 100 years after Anne Boleyn um, was executed. Um, but it was a network of buildings that were south of the White Tower itself. And... There's not really much to see there today. It's known as the South Lawn. I think there are foundations that are just barely visible and perhaps under the surface. Um, the Ravens enclosures are there on the South Lawn itself today, just to give people a rough idea if they haven't been to the Tower of London or trying to visualise it. And there would have been a great hall that was there, a really large hall, perhaps not the, the largest hall in, in the country, but it was really super big. And it connected between the Wakefield and the Landform Towers. It was on the south of the inner curtain wall of the tower. And there was a building adjacent to this great hall that went north of the Landform Tower, straight up to the Wardrobe Tower, which was just next to the south side of the White Tower. <laughs> Lots of towers being mentioned here. And this building was known as the Queen's Apartments, the one that goes from Landform to the Wardrobe Tower. And that was where Anne Boleyn was taken. Um, as I mentioned, the Great Hall, the Great Hall itself... Um, it doesn't exist today, of course. It was amongst those buildings um, that were torn down. But I think at least parts of it were still visible into the 18th century. But today there isn't any any um, any trace of it. Not that I've seen. <laughs> um, but I think Winchester Great Hall in Winchester was built around the same time as these royal apartments by King Henry III. And a lot of historians and curators go there to actually see um, the Winchester Great Hall. And although we don't have any inner descriptions of this Great Hall itself, um, we believe that a lot of it um, looks like what would have looked like in the Great Hall at the Tower of London. Where she was held, it, um, you know, we call it the Queen's Apartment. Do we have any descriptions of what it may have looked like on the inside? Like, was it just stone walls or would there have been wall hangings? What What do you think the inside or do we know what the inside of her queen's apartments look like for Anne? Unfortunately, we don't actually, as far as I'm aware, we don't actually have any um, like, like pictures of what was inside. 
Um, I'm not quite sure about descriptions. Um, I haven't actually been into the records, but when um, I think you got to look, like I was making the comparison with Winchester Great Hall in comparison to the Great Hall, I think you got to look at other palaces um, to get an idea of what was in that palace. Because we do know in 1533, and we do have records of that, that these royal apartments were actually um, renovated, redone, um, done up, <laughs> as, as, an, as, an, as an expression, um, for Anne Boleyn's coronation, which was just three years Years before she was actually beheaded, um, so it's, it, I think there would have been panelling because if it was just bare stone, it would have been quite cold and quite drafty. It would have been quite magnificent tapestries hanging from the walls, comfort, a big fireplace for warmth. I think the building probably mirrored the king's apartments, which was further into the east of the Tower of London. And we know that that was divided into three parts. I think a great chamber, great watching chamber, followed by the privy chamber and followed by the closet, if I remember correctly. So I believe that it was actually mirrored the king's apartments in that sense. So just on a much smaller scale. So the building itself would have been divided into these three chambers and I do know as well that there was a great garden adjacent to the Queen's apartments as well. And it would have been um, typical Tudor, just sort of squared off um, in beds or lawns. And then there would have been uh, wooden poles of heraldic beasts. It would have been quite spectacular to look at. And there was a further building that overlooked the garden on the south side. So if we use the landform tower as a point, you've got the Queen's apartment going north and then stretching to the east from the landform tower was the, known as the King's Gallery, which is where they can just walk up and down, view the, view the gardens, walk um, when in bad weather instead of the gardens itself and probably had looks over the, over the view of the river. So the whole complex was very luxurious um, to, to look at. And inside, it would have matched that just as luxurious. Um, as I said, it would have matched the king's apartments. So you would imagine there would have been every comfort in their furniture, a comfortable bed. Um, so in a sense, when Anne Boleyn was imprisoned there, I think it would have been quite psychological terror for her, um, simply being because she remembered that, apartment in better times and it was still had those decorations and luxuries that were there and obviously in so very different circumstances it's it, when you really think about it how it must have been for her it must have been absolutely psychologically traumatizing for her especially as people speak about the sudden speed of her downfall one minute she was at Greenwich being queen probably a little bit apprehensive. She could see that things were going on. Henry um, had abruptly just left her at the joust um, on the 1st of May. She had no idea why. And then all of a sudden she was summoned to the council, told of her arrest, and she was taken to the tower, taken to the palace, and didn't really know what was going on. But yet she was surrounded by the luxury and finery of her position. It's really quite surreal to think about it. There's so, There's much, so much mystery around that time. And I've always mm. wondered, out of curiosity, do you believe um, her May 6th letter from the tower was real? 
Would she have even had the opportunity to write someone? It's a very, very good question. And it is something that I'm continually researching into. Um, I'm reading up a lot about it. Um, I mean, I don't know the letter word for word (laughs) off by heart. Um, It was found amongst Cromwell's papers, I think, long after both of them had died. I think Elizabethan times, I think it was found. It's certainly not in her own handwriting i think that's certainly and there's there's different languages and how you interpret it um the letter itself appears to be quite confrontational if i remember in certain places um i wouldn't be i I suppose the safest thing to say is that i wouldn't be surprised if it was genuine like if it was from her but i'm swinging towards the other side because I think by being a bit confrontational, she might have been compromising her chances, perhaps, because we do know from Kingston's letters that her moods were swinging back and forth into hysteria. Um, One minute she was laughing, next minute she was weeping in particular. And I suppose everything about her life was going through her mind at that point. She just didn't really expect this downfall to come along at all. And... But I think I've recently read or, or heard on an audiobook or, or something that um, she had expressed a desire to write to the king to try and have her say. Um, it's just one of those things that I think is very, very difficult to prove 100%. Um, but I believe that this letter, I think for me, the safest thing is to say I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out to be genuine, if somehow we could definitely prove it or it was actually a, a forgery of some kind. Well, not not exactly forgery, um, but someone trying to be rather romantic about it. I think it's a very interesting piece of evidence to look into, certainly. It just leaves so many questions, you yeah. know. If she wrote it, how did it get into Cromwell's possession? Well, he was the king's right-hand man. He probably would have received mm-hmm. the letter. But why would he have kept the letter? That's the part that gets me. Why yeah. would he have kept it? Why wouldn't he have just burned it? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose record, recording for record's sake. Um, but, I mean, anything, <laughs> if we relate to how we, we, we do our own paperwork nowadays, um, sometimes you get bits that are left behind or perhaps someone slipped it in and just hoped for the best that the, he'd read it. Was it actually meant for the king? I think it actually did say something along the lines that it was to the king. She's, she's certainly, well, if she did write it, she's certainly addressing um, to the king of her of her predicament and how she feels about it um but it really is it's like it could be any number of reasons of why it didn't go to the king why it stayed in cromwell's papers could it be someone being a bit sinister um slipping something in to try and somehow blacken cromwell's name say oh you forgot this letter who who knows it could be in any range of reasons at all that's very true Mm. and and then we move forward to her trial, and mm-hmm. we all know it was an unfair trial, but the, the question that I feel came up a lot this month again, being her anniversary month, was how soon had they called for the French executioner? Do you know the answer to that? 
I, I've definitely been looking it up lately. Obviously, as you say, with the anniversary being gone, it's always a time for me where I go back and look over that time um, of, of May 1536. And at this moment in time, I haven't found anything that recalls um, that orders a French executioner. So I think the date is an open question. Um, but it does appear that he was probably ordered before the trial. That's, uh, that's what I would say. Um, it was a foregone cl- conclusion, and I think Henry's, Henry's behaviour as well and what, he's, what people were reading into what he was saying certainly proved that the trial was just, was just a show trial in one sense. Um, we do know that the execution was delayed as well. On the 18th, the, uh, the, the execution was scheduled for the 18th of May and it was delayed at least twice and was told of this as, as events were happening and she was afraid that it was going to weaken her resolve. Um, so perhaps he was in a hurry, uh, you know, perhaps he, he was trying to get there perhaps he had been ordered last minute and he was trying to really rush from Calais to England to get to London to do his job um but as far as I know of an actual date of actually ordering and sending off for the executioner um I just haven't found a record of it as yet (laughs) you never know when one might resurface who knows do we know if it was Anne's wish to die by a sword um Again, it's one of those things where I don't don't think is actually written down specifically. Um, one of the records I've been trying to find is the death warrant. Um, I think in Eric Ives' book, um, he says that the execution was committed as um, meant because they said at her trial that she was to be burned or beheaded at the king's pleasure, and the king actually was the one who decided that she was going to be beheaded and apparently according to Eric Ives it said in that book that he commuted it down to beheading rather than burning um but I think why the sword is still an open question um I'd like to see that death warrant to see if there is any um clue as to why it was the sword I've heard so many different theories (laughs) it's hard to choose which one would be correct but I believe I'm going for the one where it was a swift execution. I mean, it it guaranteed a swift, dignified end, and Anne was the queen at the time of her execution. And using the sword would have added a bit of sort of dignity, a bit of romance and status. I mean, what a morbid romance (laughs) it would have been but her execution was going to be a show execution as well I think up to a thousand people watched her die um the peers of the land were going to be there and I suppose as well another theory is that they were trying to avoid the clumsy axe the the axe had a reputation of um being quite brutal (laughs) trying not to go go into the grisly details um so I think a, a, a woman kneeling up or upright in the straw would have been a bit more pleasant <laughs> to, to have a look at, um, to, to actually watch, rather than um, obviously being butchered by the axe, as we know so many people were, unfortunately. So I believe I'll go the theory that the sword was there to give her a more dignified end Um, in front of so many people Uh, but perhaps it was her choice perhaps she did it was her one last say I'd like to think so (laughs) 
you just can't help but feel for her. And I always think about her last night in the tower. What mm. do we what do we really know about that last night that Anne spent on Earth? We know um sort of looking into the records, um we as I mentioned before, that her execution was delayed and we know on the evening of the 17th of may um just after the executions of her brother and the four other men um she spent it in quiet reflection she was in prayer um i think she was with her almoner if i remember of heart um so i think i don't think she slept during the night um, I suppose she was just preparing her soul. And so we know that she was doing that on the 17th of May. Um, and then obviously she was anticipating her execution the following morning on the 18th. And then it was delayed. And she actually did say something along the lines of, I thought I was ready at this time. She had prepared her soul. So knowing that there was nothing else she could do, um, really, I suppose she went back to her reflections, meditations, her her, her prayers, um, just trying to gather her strength to wait a little bit longer for that execution time. It's so horrible that the poor mm-hmm. woman was prepared to die, and yep. then the next morning finds out no, it's it's been delayed a day. Like now, you have to go through that whole process again of yeah. mentally preparing yourself. I can't. It's heart wrenching. It is, it is very heart-wrenching. It, it's hard to put yourself in those shoes if you've never been in that place, but it must be such a low and dark place to actually be, the in, to be in such circumstances. And like I was saying about the palace, she was surrounded by all this luxury at the same time, yet she was languishing, she was waiting to die. Um, but I suppose it must have been preying on her mind that the world was going to watch her die as well and so she was determined to try and make this good end and I suppose it's like someone would take on meditation today when they're very stressed and I suppose her reflection of prayer it was some sort of interpretation of her trying to distress and trying to prepare her strength for this I think when it actually came to the real event the actual 19th of May um, I think there's there's some witnesses that say she never looked so beautiful i think there's another one where she said they say she looked dazed and confused i think that that was related to her um and she was probably looking absolutely exhausted because she probably had not slept for the last couple of nights i mean what what would you do (laughs) I, i really don't know what i would i would do if i was in that situation other than try and sort of contemplate perhaps talk to the people around me and try and maybe i mean she was sort of in good spirits at some point she had this really black sense of humor so perhaps she was talking to her ladies trying to get her mind off of things (laughs) a bit trying to Mm. just sort of lighten the, the mood a bit um but i think judging from kingston's records it seems that she was largely at prayer in her spiritual um sense trying to prepare for the end but it is even talking about it, I can feel the emotion almost mm-hmm. and thinking what what an awful place to be in spiritually, emotionally, mentally, what an awful place to be in let's let's move forward mm-hmm. <laughs> after we've been 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 drained of all of our emotions, thinking about <laughs> Anne Boleyn. Training, yeah. <laughs> what would 
let's get to the day of her execution because I'm curious from the moment she woke, do we know from the moment she woke till the time she stepped up on the scaffold, what her day looked like? What was the weather like and that kind of stuff? I imagine that the weather would have been quite nice. Um, Certainly no one, I don't think actually specifically recorded the weather as such, but obviously living in the UK, the weather is generally quite nice in May. I think there was some sort of legend or prophecy I think Anne reflected on that said something that it wouldn't rain until she was dead, if I remember correctly. Um, So I think that is, if that's true, I think that's that's a big hint that, I think the weather was quite nice at the time. And I think had the weather been absolutely poor, pouring down with rain, I think the execution probably would have been postponed again. So we must imagine that the weather was quite good. Again, if the whole aim was to put on a show, even though it was for someone to die, if it was the aim to put on a show as such, um, they would have had to have had nice weather to carry it out because they would have had to have... um, been able to see the scaffold um i don't know if any stands i do know on public um executions on tower hill the stands were erected um around because people in their hundreds would have come around for a public um beheading but they they really tried to control the crowds at the tower of london they do say the gates were open um so i think there were many witnesses to her last journey and it was all very ceremonial she would have been escorted there um by the yeoman of the guard william kingston was obviously escorting her as well her ladies accompanied her the four young ladies and I think at least from the public, if the gates were open, the public could have seen at least her last journey if they did not actually see her die. She gave out arms to the public, so perhaps she she would have um, she to do that. She would have had to have met um, the populace. Um, but for the actual moment of execution, I think it was quite reserved for the peers. Um, it was more private when it came to the actual event of her death, and. I do know from obviously working at the tower that that we can get a lot of mist at certain times so from the river. So I suppose it would have had to have been a very clear day. The weather would have been have to have been clear. And if it didn't meet these standards, I imagine that the execution would have been postponed again <laughs> for for the event so everyone could have a clear view. The poor thing. So she's she's on her way to her death. She's giving out alms. Um, she makes her way to the scaffold mm-hmm. and and then we know about her final speech, which yeah. is am- amazing for us to have um, those firsthand records of what people have said that she said while she was standing up there. And when you read it, you can't help but feel moved. It's a very moving speech. I think it's got to be up there amongst some of the finest historical speeches, I think, of of British history. Um, for me, I like the part, I think, her last laugh, if she did have one, was, um, in a sense, the, the, the quote where she said, um, if anyone would meddle my cause, I let them judge the best. That is so dignified. But, yeah, there's a little bit of a twist in there. It's still proclaiming her innocence without actually saying that she's innocent. Um, Perhaps she had fought. Perhaps someone will um, take pity on me. Perhaps there will be rebellions. Perhaps 
someone will take up my cause and defend me. Um, but I think that's my favourite part of her speech. Um, I think there was a certain expectation um, with execution speeches. Um, I don't think it was the time or the place to start really um, using it as a confrontation. I think in fiction sometimes it's used as an opportunity for the victim to have their last say of what they would like to say. But I think there was a lot in keeping the dignity going. I mean, I think people have said that, you know, she was thinking of her family, of her daughter, which I, I suppose she probably was. Um, but certainly what she was saying was not aimed for her family or daughter. I think she was just trying to make that dignified end. It's it, Perhaps even though it was so dark, it was her finest hour. She was bowing out gracefully and she wanted to keep that dignity as befitted her station, as befitted her personality. Um, but that quote that I mentioned, I think, was where she could really express everything that she wanted to say in so few words. I think she really was trying to emphasise in that little quote that she was innocent. And was she calling for people to take up her cause? Not directly, but perhaps she was thinking there must be someone out there who can speak for me, even though I'm not physically here anymore. And in a way, I think it was quite prophet prophetic, um, like almost like a prophecy, because nowadays, 500 years later in the 21st century, so many people are interested in her, and we all, I think everyone... I think, who truly is appreciative of Anne Boleyn, believe that she was innocent. It's so obvious, going through the records, reading the history books, um, that this was a, a terrible miscarriage of justice on her. And I think she'd be kind of laughing <laughs> from the grave, in a sense, to think that she has a lot of followers that feel the same, related to what she said in her final words. Um, I think people do feel a sense that they that they want to give her the justice that she never got. But I don't think it's actually possible to do um, because it's just the time has just gone. Um, but who knows, perhaps one day, who knows, someone might, might do something, <laughs> something might be um, done. But for now, I think it's more important to never forget her story, never forget the person that she was, never forget um, how dignified she was at her end. And I think that is a great legacy to have, other than, of course, her daughter becoming Queen Elizabeth I, one of the greatest English monarchs. <laughs> I do want to touch briefly on Anne's execution she was the first consort that was executed. Was was it that unusual that her ladies removed her from the scaffold? Oh, it's, that's a very interesting question. Um, yes, I think I think I think it's said in fiction a lot that the ladies did not want men to handle her as such. Um, Perhaps that's true. I think with the sort of the more the com common prisoners, they were handled, um, the people who were executed, well, they were handled by the yeoman if it was at the tower. Um, their bodies would have been taken back by a cart. Um, but perhaps 
I've been reflecting on this and in, in my opinion, I think perhaps she might have been some sort of last request from them that perhaps she said that she didn't want the yeoman or the guards to actually handle her remains. Um, I think it's noted in her last moments that she was tucking her skirts around her legs and her feet in a bid to try and keep, again, that sort of personal dignity, perhaps because she feared that after decapitation her body might thrash around and see the legs. I think the ladies weren't permitted to show their legs in public. And so perhaps because we have that knowledge that she was tucking her skirts around her legs, at that last moment, um, the ladies were trying to keep him with perhaps a personal wish of hers uh, to try and keep that dignity that she was a lady, that she was a queen consul. Um, the ladies certainly carried her off. It said that they they wrapped it wrapped her remains in a sheet, both the head and body, and that they took them into the chapel of St Peter Advincula. And I think once among the earliest records, it says that she was buried in the choir, which would have been the the altar area. And I I think, again, this is something that's ongoing research for myself. I'm trying to find as much information as possible. And I think how could four ladies bury a body without help. I believe that they probably drafted in someone to do the physical side of lifting the paving stones, digging the earth, and then putting the body into the earth itself. We know that she was put in an elm chest. Um, it wasn't a proper coffin as such. Um, they found it in the armory stores, um, and it was of both staffs. Um, so obviously they emptied the contents if there was any and put her body in there. I think for the everyday person who was executed um, if their head was spiked on London Bridge and their body was brought back to a place of burial such as the, the, the chapel the tower um, I think the body just would have been put into the bare earth so I think from my opinion I think just by putting her in that elm chest was again carrying on with that dignity that this was a Queen of England they tried their best to find um, some sort of coffin for her, trying to give her some sort of proper burial as such. And I think, as, as I mentioned, the earliest sources sort of date from the 1600s in Chronicles. And I think it was well known that Anne was buried under the altar because there's a lot of debate about whether her remains that were found in 1876 were actually hers or not. And I believe that um, they were hers. Me personally, I think they were hers. But the earlier sources certainly say that she was buried under the altar. And I think um, these chroniclers came from London. And perhaps there was a marker. There's no one actually saying that there definitely wasn't a marked grave. Perhaps they did believe some sort of marker, but perhaps it wore away quite quickly. Um, perhaps it was um, covered up, <laughs> who knows. But certainly by the 18th century, I think we can say with certainty there was no marker there. Um, her grave had been lost, unfortunately. But I do believe that after the execution, um, using the four ladies, um, taking away her body, I think, again, it was trying to keep up with perhaps a personal wish she had made. There's obviously nothing on record to say that she had any last wishes in that respect. 
but I think it possibly could have been a last wish and trying to keep her being the Queen of England. She was it was the Queen Consul at the time of her death. Certainly. You, you recently helped me out on Facebook on mm-hmm. the anniversary of Anne's execution. Yeah. You you had made a wonderful post about when her body was found and what was found on the body or of the body. Mm. Um would you mind going into that maybe a little bit with listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, it's something um, I've been researching very recently. It's quite fresh in my mind. And I posted that that post because obviously I believe it's quite an interesting topic, but not one that's always covered. Um, so I think it was some months ago I was going through a wonderful book. I actually managed to purchase a first edition um, copy of it that was written in 1877 and it's a long title but to shorten it it's notices of the per- historical persons buried in the chapel royal of st peter ad vincula the author is doyne seabell and it's one of my best books <laughs> it's one of the best books i ever read it's absolutely so fascinating in the sense of what was carried out in 1876 and then into the spring of 1877. Um, so in, a, in, in to summarise, in a nutshell, um, it, I think Doyne C. Bell, he was part of Queen Victoria's household, I believe, and he was going around um, the historical places, Windsor Castle, Westminster Abbey, um, just to view the tombs, the royal tombs of um, the past monarchs, And then he knew that there were famous historical figures that were buried at the tower. So when he came to the tower, to the chapel, I think he was quite saddened that there was absolutely no memorial there for any of these people, not just Queen Anne Boleyn, but we're talking about the Dukes of Northumberland, the Dukes of Somerset, um, who were beheaded a bit later than, than Anne Boleyn. Lady Jane Grey is another one. There was just absolutely nothing in that chapel, and he felt that it wasn't fitting. And I think he's quite right in, in thinking that. It was. It should have been something a bit more fitting, because by sort of 300 years later, um, I think the Tudors got a bit of a revival um, in the Victorian era. Everyone began to realise their story. There was a few people writing historical books about these these historical figures at the time, and it was capturing imagination for certain. And he felt that something needed to be done. And I think what really sealed the deal was that he realised that the chapel, at least inside, was in need of a good um, repair. And so that he got a team together of, of people that were all involved with, with Queen Victoria's household one way or another. And the pavement, it was noted, to have sunk in two places at the altar. One, I, it's it's hard because there are not any pictures in the actual book, so it's hard to sort of paint the picture. But from what I, I've, I've read, on one side, on the left, it was sunk, and on the right side, it was sunk as well. Um, but they did know from traditions and some records, that the, the scant records that they had at the time, that there were burials there, including Anne Boleyn in particular. So they decided to draw up a plan first, just to sort of sort of get a, get a good idea of who could be under there. And they realised that on sort of to the left of the altar, they um, Anne Boleyn and her brother George was possibly buried in that place. So they decided that yes, that was where it was sunk. So let's let's um, let's do some digging. <laughs> so they lifted the slabs. 
and they said not two feet under, they found um, the bones of someone. They they could clearly see, from whatever they could see, they could clearly see it was one person, but they weren't lying in the original order. So they found them to be piled, I think is, is, is the term, they found them piled under the earth. And using a sieve, they carefully removed all these remains. And they found that further down, there was an 18th century coffin of a woman called Hannah Beresford, if memory serves correct. And the lid of her coffin had collapsed, which had caused the pavement to sink. So that answered the question of why Anne Boleyn's, these pile of bones were piled up in a corner. That's why they weren't lying in the original order, was because it was to allow Hannah Beresford's coffin to be buried further under. And I think the date of her burial is roughly 1750. I'm just sort of off the top of my head there. Um, so they believed that on this plan they found these bones and it said that on their, according to their plan that these bones should be Amberlynn. So they got a doctor to have a look. The bones were removed to the Queen's house where they were examined and he established that they were female um, in the prime of life. He estimated an age between 25 and 30. There's debate about whether that is correct or not. But at the time, that's what he believed. And he described there was enough there. There's there's actually very little that actually survived at that point. But there was enough there for him to conclude that there was this lady who stood five foot three, five foot five in height. She had very slim feet, narrow feet. And she had these tapering fingers as well. And I think we're all familiar with portraits of Elizabeth I with these beautiful, long-fingered hands, particularly that lovely portrait of um, Elizabeth when she was about the age of 13 that's in the Royal Collection, where her hands are completely on show. And so I like to think that that is the proof that it's Anne Boleyn because... Um, Elizabeth would have inherited them from someone. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure what type of hands Henry VIII had. Um, but as they found these remains, they they had um, these long, slim fingers. Um, the chest was noted as being quite deep and round. Um, a deep, rounded, absolutely perfect. And I think sort of in, in a bit of whimsical kind of mood. She had one rotten tooth, and I think they found that she had um, one of her molars was um, decayed, I think, from life. And I, I like that. <laughs> it sort of makes it a bit more more human in, in one sense. Um, but it is sad um, because, like I said, there's no pictures in the book. There's no diagrams or anything. And I decided that I wanted to have a visual. And the the doctor, Dr. Mowat, I think Mowat, I think he, how you pronounce his name, he actually left a very detailed list of all the bones he could identify, um, all the all the different types of human bones that have names. There's, there's absolutely loads in the human body. And he left a complete list. And I thought, well, that can be easily done if I found a diagram <laughs> on the internet, <laughs> which I did. And luckily there was one that was free. And so I took my daughter's red pen and I just began to fill in the names of the bones. And yeah, it didn't take me too long. But then I, I, I looked back at it and I just thought, this is really good. This gives us the visual of what was actually left because 
not everyone knows their bones. I, I'm not a bone expert. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> indeed. And I just thought it's not accurate, but it gives us something to look at. It's, it definitely gives us something. And I, I look online, I go on social media quite, quite a lot, and I look at people discussing, and there's so many different rumours, different theories that are out there. And I thought if I could just somehow make it public and actually give people a visual to actually see what they what they found, it might clear some of those rumours and myths up. Um, yeah, because- I, you did such a wonderful job, and I don't mean to interrupt you as you're... <laughs> but one of the descriptions um, that came out of this that amazed me... And once I looked at your, you know, the skeleton where you colored in the pieces, mm. it blew my mind. So one of the descriptions was that she had large o- orbits or eye sockets. Yeah, that's another description. She, right. So a picture, uh, she had the large eyes. She had an intellectual forehead, straight yeah. orbital ridge and square full chin. That just gives us a picture, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it really is... is contradicts the the, uh, the well-known image of, that we have of Anne Boleyn, which is that famous portrait from the National Portrait Gallery, beautiful portrait. And you read that description and then you look at this portrait and you're like, wait a minute, it doesn't really add up here. Um, but then I think that's what creates the debate about whether these remains actually were Anne's. Um, but... The portrait, it has been, I think, in the last 10 years, about 10 years ago, it was analysed scientifically. And I think the actual portrait itself, um, I think the earliest it could have been created using dendrochronology, if I pronounce that right, the analysation of the wood. I can tell from the rings when the tree was felled because the portraits were painted on wood at that point. The earliest that portrait could have been painted was around 1584, 1594, if memory serves correct. So that is a good 50 years after Anne Boleyn was um, was killed, was, was executed. And so is how accurate is this portrait? There is a legend that says that it's based on an ancient original, but no one can actually find the ancient original. That's something that's still out there to be found. So I think knowing that about that portrait, it can't really be relied on. So do we rely on the physical remains of Anne Boleyn or do we rely on the portraits in trying to get a picture of what she looked at? But I'm going to swing for the archaeological evidence because all the sources agree that she was buried under the altar. Um, Unfortunately, the burial register for the chapel only goes back as far as 1550. So it's a good nearly 20 years after Anne Boleyn's execution. And even then it was only scant. Um, You know, they they only recorded when they felt like it, I think, back in those times. Um, but there's absolutely no reason to doubt that those bones, in my opinion, that those bones are not ambulins. I think that I, I truly believe that they are because, like I said about the hands, as you say about the orbits, of course, I think one of the, the things that come emerge from her story is the is her eyes. There's lots of evidence to say that she had these beautiful eyes, but again, it's really hard to say what, was it about them? We do know that they were dark. Um, I think one one ambassador ambassador in 1532 said that they were black and beautiful. And I do 
you do see people with eyes so dark that they do look black. Um, I actually have um, a cousin who has these beautiful black eyes um, as well. She has really beautiful black eyes. They're very, very dark, but when you look closer, they're brown. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think having that in my family, I can, I can relate and see that, yes, you can get very dark eyes. And I, I'm not sure if it's actually a contemporary source, but I think at her coronation, someone called her a goggled-eyed whore on record, if you, if you don't mind me using that expression. Um, but what does goggle-eyed actually mean? So, again, that is evidence of her having these very attractive eyes. These eyes seem to attract, whether it was through um, through hate or through love, you know, I think there was something about these eyes. And the, on the remains, having large orbits um, in particular goes to show that there was something about the eyes. So, again, that really, for me, points that these remains were Anne Boleyn. They must have been. So now the question of the hour, because as anybody who listens to my podcast knows, <laughs> somehow yeah. or another, I have to bring Thomas Seymour into conversation. That's all right. He's just as fascinating. Um, again, he's, he's a man that I don't think not many people really truly know his story. Even I don't really know his story that well. And I think, actually, no, I'd love to know more. Actually, he sounds like a rogue. <laughs> 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 well, as we know, obviously, he was executed and he was um, buried in St. Peter as well. Do we know where Thomas's remains are? Today, unfortunately, there's absolutely no memorial on the floor for him. Um, according to the book I mentioned, when they went digging in 1876, 1877, they certainly didn't find him. And I've looked, they do have a picture of the plan in that book and his name is not among them at all in on that plan. So I don't think they expected to find him there, which is very interesting. Why was he not put in the altar like so many were, such as the Duke of Somerset, they found his remains. They found the Duke of Northumberland, they found his remains. But they didn't find Lady Jane Grey or the Duke of Suffolk, but there is a memorial slab just a bit further down from the altar that has their names on. The uh, Thomas Seymour's name only appears on a brass plaque that's just inside the door, and it has the date he died, which was 1549, and obviously has his name. Um, but in that book, um, they do actually have um, biographical descriptions um, of, of the stories of the prisoners. And Thomas Seymour is included in there. And what is wonderful about it is that they actually have um, written, transcribed his death warrant. And I think that is the crucial point because it says both head and body to be taken into the tower or buried in the tower. It doesn't actually say chapel, which is interesting because I think tradition has it that, yes, people were buried in the chapel, such as George Berlin. But what we do know, if we go to Anne Boleyn's case, is that the four other men were buried in the churchyard, which was just outside the chapel. There were burials outside the chapel in this churchyard. And I actually think that Thomas Seymour was possibly buried in the churchyard because on his death warrant it doesn't say chapel it says in the tower and oh i think God. i think Are you it's serious 
Yeah, I do believe. <laughs> it's very hard because I have have been looking it up and um everyone I think all the all the biographical, all the early sources, sort of nineteenth century and earlier, all say they seem to cut off at that point. They just say they just repeat that point of where he, he died was it irksomely, horribly, which is just awful. Um, but on his death warrant, it says both head and body to be buried in the tower. And I think when you look back at the sources for Anne Boleyn, for example, they say they're more specific, the choir, the, the altar in the chapel. And I actually think Thomas probably ended up in the churchyard. However, I think, if memory serves correct, um, that he's possibly in the crypt because they found other remains in that churchyard. I think when it, when it came to the time of build, building the Waterloo block, which was just after the fire of the grand storehouse in 1841, when they came to build the Waterloo block, um, I think it's just tradition. Again, I haven't actually seen the records, um, but they, they, it said that they found remains of people at that time um, because they were doing the tower up throughout the whole 19th century. It was, things had fallen into disrepair, and Queen Victoria was very interested in the tower at the time. She was getting the place looking as medieval as possible. And I think in that time, they did find remains of people in what remained of the churchyard outside the chapel. And in the crypt, there are 1,500 individuals in two large boxes that are buried in the wall. And it includes people like Sir Thomas More as well, people that they found in the floor. Um, so I think, if anything, Thomas Seymour is probably in the crypt. But I think originally... I think from what I found out on his death warrant, it seems to indicate that he was possibly in the churchyard rather than actually in the chapel. But he was spared the uh, indignity of having his head on a pike on <laughs> London Bridge because it said both head and body to be brought into the tower for, for burial. Well, that and, was nice of them. <laughs> yeah, and I think for that reason as well, I'm I'm not quite sure on what titles that Thomas Seymour had, but I think he wasn't a duke, was he? No, uh, he was a baron and Lord High Admiral. And yeah, even though they're quite high status um, titles to have, I think that is probably why they refrain, refrained from burying him in the altar because that was reserved for the highest, like the Queen, um, Queen Anne Boleyn, Queen Catherine Howard. Um, Lady Rochford was the wife of George Boleyn and she was beheaded alongside um, Queen Catherine Howard, as we know. And then Margaret Pohl is, is in there. She, has, she had royal blood. So I think for poor Thomas Seymour, I think because he just didn't, he wasn't a member of the club, shall we say. And like the men um, that Anne Boleyn was accused of and the ones of Catherine Howard, even though they were of the royal court, they were in the, sort of the royal circle, um, I think that he was probably put in the churchyard for along the same reasons, that their, their status just wasn't high enough to be put in that place of honour un under the altar. Well, thank you for explaining that to me, because I, I've been curious about that for a long time. And now I want to go back and look at the warrant. Yes, yes. Um, 
definitely if, if you find a copy of it but it is transcribed in that book notices of the historic persons buried sure. in the chapel hill of saint peter advincula these books have such long titles <laughs> <laughs> well i'll include a link for everybody um in the show notes and i'm going to go back through all of my records because i'm pretty sure i have a copy of his warrant somewhere that i can go back through again yeah. Now we've reached the time, the, the part of the show where I ask you a few questions outside of our topic. Okay. <laughs> so the first one is, if I were to give you a time machine, what event in time would you choose to witness? Oh, interesting question. There's so many. There's, there's just so many. I have to say, not everyone's going to agree, but I think I would have liked to have been there at the actual execution of Anne Boleyn, having read so much about it, even though it would be such a horrifying experience, it was it was a history being made at that point. It's one of those points in history where I think history is being made. And away from the brutality of watching someone getting beheaded, I think I would have loved to have just been there in the atmosphere, you know, being one of these people where quite shocking it's the queen of england being beheaded so i think i i would actually be brave enough to say i think i would have liked to have been there just even though it would have been very emotionally charged no one would have known what to thought but just to have been there and, and sort of witness the events going on and having the answers to the questions that we all have <laughs> as well <laughs> then i could bring them back in that time machine <laughs> definitely other than Anne Boleyn and the Tudors, is there another period in English or British history that you love to learn about? Oh, yes. Um, I think all British royal history um, is fascinating. It's such a fascinating story. But I feel particularly close to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Um, it's, a, it's a love story in itself. And I just find her such a, a quirky woman in herself. Um, she wrote a diary. Um, she was the mother of nine children, trying to organise her family. Her childhood was, was quite lonely and tragic. So I think it's the, the, the drama behind Queen Victoria is absolutely just as fascinating to me. So I, And her love story of Prince Albert. I, I mean, I do watch films. I have read a few fictional books on Queen Victoria as well, and I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story. So I'd say, yeah, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert is another quite a fascination of mine that I like to read into. What are you currently reading? Oh, um, I actually tend to do audiobooks nowadays um, because I'm, I'm obviously a mum of two two young children. It's hard to find a moment where I can actually pick up a book, start reading and actually immerse myself into it. Um, but I tend to pick up books and sort of dip in and out rather than read um, cover to cover. Um, but at the moment, I'm not actually uh, reading anything at, at the moment. Like I said, I'm always dipping in rather than actually reading reading a current book but audiobooks is my go-to at the moment and podcasts as well so sort of get, getting my little Tudor fix from there but it would be history books I, I haven't actually sort of read historical fiction I think the most recent one um, on audible, audible um, book was um, The Other Berlin Girl um, that is quite 
uh, topic that always causes a lot of like, do you love it or do you hate it? And I thought I've never actually tried to read The Other Bling Girl. I think I did try to read it, but it just wasn't wasn't going in. So I actually put it on the audiobook and I managed to finish it. And yeah, it was it was an experience, obviously knowing about the historical side of it. Um, I, I could actually point out, no, this is not accurate. But I think it's a good story in itself. So I think that was probably the last book that I actually listened to <laughs> rather than read. <laughs> and the most important question, and you may or may not know the answer to this, is do we have any idea when the tower will open again? At the moment, no. We, we don't have any idea. I'm afraid, but I'm sure it will be as soon as it is actually possible and to keep everyone safe. Well, Tara, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And once again, thank you to HRP. And I have to say that everything that I've said in the podcast um, relates to my own opinion and not actually HRP's. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.